possible, yes. But um, there are situations where that couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need to adjust to what the time you've got and what you can do. Do you think it's possible that sometimes, and in some situations, it can actually occasionally be not the right thing to do? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. I, I, I'm not um, someone who thinks that one rule is always, no. uh, always correct. Um, I think that in planning what you're going to do with, uh, um, to help a person, um, it's important not to be misled by all the masses of suggestions for things that cure autism, help autism, and so on. Such a lot of it about medication or other sorts of approaches. Um, there's little or no support for any of these uh, more outrageous ideas about how to help a person with autism. Basically, the thing to do is to understand them and help them bit by bit to come to grips with the world. And you can only get so far, mm -hmm. but depends very much on the individual how far you can get and their level of ability. Those two things. Um, yeah. You can't say that all people with high IQ are going to respond, but uh, um, on the whole, the mm -hmm. more able they are, the more they'll respond. But um, that isn't uh, always the case. No. I'm Kate, I'm Brandon, and I'm Amanda, and this is State of the Pod. When you first search up the term autism, what first pops up is a definition from the CDC that autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD, is a developmental disability caused by differences of the brain. What also pops up are different links to the signs and symptoms of autism, as well as more about what it is. The bulk of the entire page on Google went into what people with ASD are like, or ways for you to be able to identify and determine if you have autism. In this episode, we are going to talk about the history of autism spectrum disorder and how the social aspects of it have changed over time. The term autism dates all the way back to 1943. A child psychologist named Leo Connor made some pretty monumental observations of childhood neurodivergent development disorders. And that led him to publish the first systematic documentation of an autism diagnosis. Here is an interview with Leo Connor in which he defines autism and what he believes about it. We have two specific symptoms that always have to be present in order to justify the diagnosis. They are extreme aloneness from practically the beginning of life and what I call a desire for the preservation of sameness meaning that these children live in a static life where changes can be made by no one but the child himself. Connor's definition of autism was the first step, but it was also pretty limited. Connor believed that people with autism were usually male psychiatric patients who needed long-term institutionalization. 
After making this conclusion, he looked mostly at very specific extreme behaviors associated with autism, and because he didn't realize that autism has a variety of behavioral symptoms, it wasn't until much later that autism became known as a spectrum disorder. The year after Connor published his findings on autism, in 1944, the Austrian psychiatrist Hans Asperger published a separate study on children with entirely different autistic behaviors. He is remembered primarily for his pioneering studies in autism, specifically in children. What Asperger's study first did was it designated a group of children with distinct psychological characteristics as autistic psychopaths, which is now deemed to be inconsiderate. Now you might recognize that name. The term Asperger's syndrome has been popularized by modern culture due to British psychiatrist Lorna Wing, who coined the term in 1976. We will discuss her importance to the popularization of ASD in a little bit. But let's also take the time to note that, that the term Asperger's left clinical psychology with the DSM-5. It's better to refer to what was once known as Asperger's syndrome as autism spectrum disorder and focus on the individual's ability. Not everyone on the spectrum has that was once diagnosed with Asperger's has the same experiences, and situating the disease as a spectrum allows for more diverse experiences to be considered. As mentioned before, another major figurehead of autism diagnoses is psychologist Lorna Wing. Just to reiterate, Lorna Wing is the one who actually coined the term Asperger's syndrome in the 1980s, and she continued to make changes in the history of autism diagnoses for over 50 years. Her main contribution was leading a more open-minded approach to depicting and addressing autism spectrum disorder, and we continue to use this approach today. Here's a small clip of Lorna Wing's interview from the professional conference in Manchester. What do you think is the core deficit uh, in autism? Uh, and is there any kind of test that can actually say well, this is definitely autism, and that is definitely not autism. Well, I'll start with your last statement. There is no test which can say this is definitely autism, and that isn't. I wish there were. It would make life so much easier for everybody, parents and professionals and the children themselves. So, um, what do I think is the most important aspect? Well, um, over the years, uh, my colleagues and I have been very interested in the, what we think is the uh, lack of a, a social instinct um, in people with autistic disorders. And um, we think the social in instinct underlies the uh, so social interaction, social communication, and what we call social imagination, which is the ability to think inside your head about the consequences of your actions on yourself and on other people. That we think of as social imagination. Think, we think it's very important and we're sorry to see that it's not mentioned in DSM 4 or 5 or anything. It's Maybe not needed for the cause could of be, diagnosis. Could be. And of course, the, the more things you put down as essential, um, the fewer people you're mm. able to include. Yeah. Um, the, the smaller you make the, essential, the list of essentials, the more people you yeah. can include. As we can see, diagnosing autism is complicated and it's not a one-size-fits-all process. As Lorna Wing puts it, there's no one test for autism. 
One method people have used to diagnose autism as well as other neurodivergent disorders is the use of the DSM-5, something that Lorna Wing goes into in her interview that we just played a small clip of. Kate is going to go into a little bit further what this system is. The DSM-5 attempts to give healthcare professionals a clinical way of diagnosing ASD. They typically look for difficulty communicating and interacting with other people. This can manifest in a lot of different ways, including lower eye contact levels, infrequent sharing of thoughts, difficult back and forth conversations, facial expressions and movements that don't match what's being said, and talking at length about favorite subjects without other people's interests. In addition to these communication difficulties, you also find that an estimated 87% of three-year-olds with autism spectrum disorders experience speech and language delays. And even beyond potential differences in communication with others, there are also ways that ASD can manifest individually. Many with autism spectrum disorder have restricted interests and or exhibit repetitive behaviors. A common term in the autism community is special interests. While this term is used, there is some movement away from it because it can be considered as ableist language. It's typically better to say areas of interest or discuss what a particular focus or area of interest may look like for that person. Within the repetitive behavior category for diagnosis, we can see a lasting intense interest in specific topics. Here's a vocab word for you. Echolalia. Echolalia is a clinical term used to describe repeating certain behaviors, such as saying the same word or phrase over and over again. The word echo means to repeat, and lalia means speech. Some sources say that up to 75% of children with ASD exhibit echolalia. Autism can have varying effects on interpersonal interactions, communication, learning, and behavior. These behavioral symptoms are the kinds of things that can usually be noticed in early childhood. ASD can reliably be diagnosed by about 24 months in most cases. Diagnosing autism can be tricky for doctors because of how many different autistic phenotypes there are. Recent developments toward understanding autism as a spectrum are really important for us to understand. What does it mean for autism to be a spectrum? Calling ASD a spectrum isn't about confining autism to a continuum of severity of symptoms. Rather, autism is not a linear spectrum. There are different severities of autism, but there are also different types of autism. Research has also found that some symptoms of ASD don't relate to behavior, but instead correlate to health issues. Autism often coincides with sleep problems, irritability, and gastrointestinal issues. Sleep problems, for example, have been found to be occurring within 25 to 40 percent of people with autism. Similarly, a study found that 47 percent of autism spectrum disorder patients also have gastrointestinal issues. Food is oftentimes deeply intertwined with ASD. The majority of children with autism express restricted or rigid food choices. In some cases, parents might attempt to control GI symptoms and sometimes even behavioral symptoms by having their children follow particular diets. As far as co-occurring disorders with ASD go, ADHD and anxiety are the most common. Over one in four people with autism spectrum disorder have ADHD, and a lot of children with ASD experience separation anxiety-like symptoms too. For people who experience these, treatment options often include a pharmaceutical approach, which in other words means medication. In order to mitigate some of the co-occurring disorders with ASD, some people have turned to treatment options. Two common drugs used to improve irritability and agitation in kids with ASD 
are risperidone and aripiprazole. These can be a little bit controversial because they have some adverse side effects. For one, they can cause drowsiness or sedation, but they can also cause side effects like weight gain, which in turn has been countered by taking metformin, an anti-diabetic drug. But metformin has side effects too. As we can see from this, taking these treatments can cause more harm than good. And while they can be seen as taking a step to help those with ASD, those adverse side effects can cause just as much trouble for a person. Additionally, taking these drugs seems to have endless and unpredictable responses on an individual basis. So recently, there has been a greater shift towards cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a clinical psychology approach that is helpful towards reducing anxiety symptoms. Ultimately, there is no single treatment, and therefore, treatments should look at the individual and in trying to help learning and building independence. More recently, there have been research and studies focusing on the disparities of diagnosis and how prevalent ASD is in the whole population. For example, the National Center for Health Studies in the USA published findings from telephone surveys of parents of children aged 6 to 17 undertaken in 2011 and 2012. The report showed a prevalence rate for autism of 1 in 50. Additionally, a study of 0 to 17-year-old residents in Stockholm between 2001 and 2007 found a prevalence rate of 11.5 in 1,000, very similar to the rate found in other prevalence studies in Western Europe. There has also been research conducted showing that boys were around five times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than girls, and that compared with white parents, black parents of children with ASD reported significantly fewer autism concerns and fewer social, restricted, and repetitive behavioral concerns, which may be due to lower ASD knowledge or different perceptions of whether specific behaviors are concerning. This can be traced to historical practices of redlining communities of color that have led to a stark inequality in upward socioeconomic mobility. Low socioeconomic status in turn decreases access to education and access to quality health care. Diagnosing autism early is essential for autism patients to receive treatment. However, there are numerous factors that create disparities in the age of autism diagnosis among different racial and cultural groups. For example, language barriers often prevent Latinx families from accessing care. In a subsample of Latinx families that have limited English proficiency, around 85% reported a limited knowledge about autism. As mentioned before, black parents of children with ASD reported fewer ASD-related concerns. What is the root cause of all these disparities? The answer is educational equity. Not surprisingly, those with higher maternal education, regardless of ethnicity, have reported greater access to ASD-related care. Educational campaigns such as Learn the Signs, Act Early, or the Global Autism Public Health Initiatives can increase knowledge about autism in low-income communities and communities of color. Pediatric providers also play a role in health education equity as they can provide education about ASD in a way that targets a diverse community. University-run student programs such as HEART or State of the Pod, both at Cornell University, aim to provide health and scientific education that targets a diverse community. These solutions will hopefully combat the systematic barriers in pediatric development education and the lack of research about differences in autism symptoms in diverse populations. 
I'd like to now share a clip of our interview with Dr. So Hyun Kim, who is an associate professor in the School of Psychology at Korea University. Dr. Kim leads a Spectrum Child Clinical Psychology Laboratory that is interested in using newly developed and validated measures to investigate early risk signals and developmental trajectories of ASD and other neurodivergent disorders during infancy, preschool, and the lower elementary school grades. Can you go a little bit into why it has been difficult to measure social communication changes and what treatment options have been found to be most effective during improving social communication for people with autism spectrum disorder? Yeah, so I can talk about treatment programs for young kids first. So um, for toddlers and preschoolers, when they are diagnosed with autism, they will start to receive treatment. Um, the most uh, well-known treatment program will be ABA, um, Applied Behavior Analysis Intervention Program, which is based on behavior principles that has shown effectiveness for over a decade. But recently, there have been other programs that have been developed that is focused on more naturalistic settings and also incorporating developmental principles. So understanding where the child is at, um, really meeting the child at the child's level and implementing many intervention strategy in a more naturalistic setting. Those intervention programs are called NDBI, Naturalistic Developmental Behavior Intervention. And there are many brand names for this type of um, program. Jasper is one of them. Early Start Denver Model ESDM is another one. And those intervention models um, programs have shown effectiveness as well in improving language skills, cognitive skills, motor skills, various domains of functioning. Adoptive functioning is another um, domain that um, kids have shown improvement after receiving this kind of treatment. So that's for young kids. And then for older kids, people have explored options of like social skills training, social stories. There are programs like Teach, um, which came from University of North Carolina. Um, and um, for adults, the needs change. So there are many programs that also focus on like vocational skills as well. Um, but for my research, we've been really focusing on young kids. And it has been difficult to measure effectiveness in core symptoms of autism over the course of treatment, because there are not many measures that really target core symptoms of autism, which is social communication difficulties. So many intervention models have used certain outcome measures to show that, you know, their programs work, but some of them were created by intervention um, designers that was very specific to that particular intervention model. So we wanted to develop something that can be applied to various models um, so that we can compare effects across um, different intervention model. I've been working with Dr. Kathy Lord, um, her team to develop measures looking at treatment changes in young kids with autism. With this research and how you kind of need like close interaction with your child, I was wondering how COVID has affected this research that you've been conducting. Yeah, that's a really good question. With COVID, research definitely suffered 
because many of the studies that we're doing um, is longitudinal study, meaning we don't see kids at one time only, but we follow these kids over time, right? And there are certain research questions like, does the schooling change executive function in kids with autism? That was one of the research questions that we had in our study. So we saw kids at kindergarten entry, and then we saw kids again at kindergarten exit. And we did a lot of um, assessment at the entry of kindergarten, like executive function, social skills, academic, school readiness, right? And then at the end of kindergarten, like a year later, we brought them back and we assessed them again. And then we wanted to see the changes over time. So we had a few cohorts. We started the study before COVID and then we had um, kids who came to us before kindergarten and after kindergarten for a couple of years, and then COVID came. And then we had the cohort of kids who we wanted to follow. And because of COVID, first of all, we couldn't have kids come in um, in the beginning because of the restrictions. Um, so we we missed the um, window of opportunity to follow these kids over time. And then when we were ready to bring them back, we were wrestling with the question, is this COVID cohort comparable to the cohort that we saw before? Can we actually combine all these data and say, like, you know, we see changes in, uh, over the course of kindergarten because we had a mix of kids um, who came to us and who were followed before COVID and then after. So we decided to exclude the cohort um, during COVID who were followed during COVID because they probably have qualitatively different kinds of experiences. Um, so that was um, one of the things that we struggled with. And then when I was at Autism Center at um, Cornell, while well, Cornell Medical School, um, our clinic shut down for a few months. So that was a tremendous um, challenge for families who really wanted to come for um, assessment, diagnostic assessment, as well as treatment. Luckily, we opened right away in like a few months, um, but um, that was a really tough time for everyone um, um, in the clinic as well as research. As an expert and researcher on autism, what do you think is the most important social change to benefit the lives of members of the autistic community? Um, so in psychology, we talk about changes in individuals quite a bit. But we should not forget that, you know, individuals live in the context, right? <laughs> so, Brenda, when you say social change, um, that is exactly what it means that we need system systemic change, right? Um, not just changes within individuals. So many of these intervention programs is really focused on changing the individuals. Um, so we want to improve social communication skills in kids with autism, right? And we do change the environment, um, which is targeting parents and caregivers. We work with school system to make sure that they use strategies to really support these kids. So those are really important components too. Um, but um, I think increasing awareness about autism and neurodevelopmental disorders within the community and in the general public is also really important. Um, so I'm teaching neurodiversity class 
in the neurodiversity class, we really try to understand autism and other neurodevelopmental disorder from the perspective of um, social model of disability. So it is a, you know, difference rather than a disorder. We really are all responsible to um, give the support for these um, individuals um, neurodivergent um, individuals um, and um, really help them to get integrated in the bigger community. And I think it's really important to educate um, the general public. And um, because of that, I think a podcast like this is really important um, way to connect with the community to um, increase awareness about um, conditions like this. Although the focus on autism research tries to stay clear of the ableist view that autism is a problem that needs to be solved, many scientists push forward the frontier of understanding ASD's causes. A popular misconception is that vaccines can cause autism, yet there is no actual association between ASD and vaccinations. A lot of vaccines are typically given to young children to help them gain immunity to diseases. Tetanus, polio, measles, and hepatitis B are just a handful of the diseases that children under 2 are vaccinated against. Most cases of ASD are diagnosed reliably by 2 years of age. So around that time that a child starts to express neurodivergent behaviors, they are also getting a lot of vaccines. Some parents have thus associated these two things together and have come to the conclusion that vaccines are causing autism. But when it comes down to it, claims that the two are related are not found in science. But if not vaccines, then what? Researchers are currently looking for ways to understand the causes of autism. There are some factors that increase the likelihood of getting autism, like having a sibling or a parent with autism spectrum disorder. For example, in some studies, it was found that up to 20% of the younger siblings to people who have autism spectrum disorder are found to have autism spectrum disorder themselves. This rate is found to be higher if you have more than one sibling with autism, and some studies have found that you can inherit variants associated with autism from your father. Studies like these suggest that autism spectrum disorder is heritable, or in other words, can be passed on to you from your parents' DNA. Yet, unlike some genetic traits, we can't quite say for sure what an autism gene would look like. It's more likely that there is a large number of different places in our genetic code that are interacting in a way that is like a system that causes a person to have autism spectrum disorder. If there are genes that code for ASD, there are lots and lots of different reasons why they might be expressed. There are certain stages in our fetal development that are proving important to the effect of ASD on a kid. So basically, there's this stage where a child is developing in the womb when their brain is developing in its prefrontal cortex system. If you haven't heard of your prefrontal cortex, that's the part of your brain used for decision-making, personality expression, and moderating social behavior. If you think back to some of those associated behaviors with ASD, it makes sense why scientists thought to look at this part of your brain. They have a lot more gene sequencing and analysis to do, but even with the information researchers have now, there already seems to be a lot of genes associated with developing your brain at this point. These genes all encode for proteins. These proteins that genes produce narrow down the scope of the effects scientists are looking at. Most of these genes encode for proteins that can be broken down into two functional groups. One, synaptic structure and function, 
and two, modifications of chromatin. Let's break that down a little more. Synaptic structure and function sounds a little scary, but really all it's talking about is the way your nerves connect in your brain. Synapses are the places where your nerves end and come in contact with another nerve. Here, one nerve can pass information to the next nerve and create a little biological information circuit. The network of synapses can be really complicated, and their function of passing information basically involves both electricity and chemicals. If structures develop differently, that means that the connectivity of the prefrontal cortex is different in people with ASD. If they have different functions, that means that there is a difference in how they're actually working. Okay, now let's circle back to chromatin. What is chromatin? Chromatin is basically fancy packaged DNA. During the prefrontal cortex development stage of autism, some researchers have found that ASD correlates with changes in chromatin stability and composition. These DNA modifications are highly variable though. Sometimes you add your DNA, sometimes you delete it. And while there is a statistically significant number of point mutations found in this case, no one single change is a marker for autism. Ultimately, all these complicated brain changes that are happening during development set a precedent for future changes in the brain. Neuroimaging studies of children show differences in brain shape of children with ASD, in particular, the right hemisphere. Other scientists have pointed out brain volume overgrowth in early childhood. As you can um, see from the name spectrum, right, autism spectrum disorder, there's huge, huge variability and heterogeneity in how symptoms present as well as the functioning. Um, so if you've met a person with autism, you've met a person with autism. There are so many different kinds of needs um, and levels of functioning. Um, so from the neurodiversity um, movement perspective, we do um, want to really value um, um, the opinions of these individuals who are advocates um, and they um, really are trying to shape um, the culture. Um, they also want to contribute to research, right? Um, their mission is um, nothing about us without us. So um, really having them be the central, um, play central role in um, some of the research studies that we are doing. Um, so community um, participatory uh, research, community-based participatory research is um, one of the ways to incorporate their um, thoughts and um, expertise um, um, of those self-advocates. Um, that's, I think, really important. But we should also not forget that there's the other end of spectrum where there are people who really cannot speak for themselves. Um, and they are the ones who have the extreme needs, um, high levels of needs. Um, and um, those who might be nonverbal, right? Um, those who might have severe um, um, self-injurious behaviors or other um, um, issues that might need a lot of support, we should not forget them because they really cannot speak for themselves and they need a lot of help and support. Um, so um, just knowing that there is um, spectrum and heterogeneity within this um, within this condition and um, recognizing that um, the, the needs are um, really varied um, will be, I think, really important for all of us.
Thanks for joining us for this discussion on autism spectrum disorder. Special thanks for this episode goes to Dr. So Hyun Kim and the Investigative Biology Department for our recording equipment and software. This has been State of the Pod. See you next time.